0: And welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subisati. And we're back in our vaults, our new home. And goodness, it, it is starting to feel like home. So this is
1: our second episode recording out of the vault, and I have to apologize for some of our tech difficulties last month. We were so excited to have all this new equipment, but I didn't really have it set up quite properly. So we got a little bit of help this time from a fellow podcaster in Toronto by the name of Eric, who runs a podcast called Conspiracy Theories. And I'm not mispronouncing that. It's actually called Conspiracy Theories because, you know, like us, they like to have a couple of cocktails while they're recording. And what they do is they talk about conspiracy theories and they will pick a different one for every episode. They put out an episode every week, actually. It's tremendous. And yeah, they talk about them and they're a bunch of guys who are pretty funny and pretty smart and you should really check out their show. It's doing really well on iTunes even though they haven't been at it very long and Eric was very kind to come in and take a look at our setup and teach me a couple of things about this program because even though we've been doing this podcast for Two two years now, but I still have a lot to learn clearly. So we put out the episode And we had some feedback that it wasn't sounding too good. So big thanks to Jason Pichonski for remastering that for us. And we re-uploaded it. And I think everybody was able to hear it okay. So sorry about the mix-up. Hopefully it will not happen again.
0: That's like the biggest horror movie cliche. We should never say, I hope that never happens again. Because it will totally happen again. You're
1: right. I just totally screwed us. Maybe we should split up.
0: Maybe you should watch Scream. I don't think so. So it's springtime once again, and this time
1: last year we decided to take our episode into the brave outdoors, the bold outdoors, the sinister and kind of foreboding woods with our episode on Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2.
0: And that one went so well that we decided to actually go further. We decided to not only return to the woods, but to return to the titular Cabin in the Woods. So, we are, of course, as we said last month, talking about the 2012 film by Drew Goddard, which was co written by him and Joss Whedon. The ultimate crazy horror comedy film that we always wanted to get to Cabin in the Woods.
1: Are everybody ready? <laughs> get the show on the
0: road! It not even show up on the GPS. It's unworthy of global positioning. That's the whole point. Get off the grid,
2: right? Hello? I'm thinking this thing doesn't take credit cards. times says closed. We're looking for, uh, what's it called?
0: Tillerman Road.
2: Not to get you there. Getting back. That's your concern. Oh, <laughs> This is awesome. Whoa, no way. The lambs have passed to the gate, they are come to the killing floor. I seriously believe something weird is going on. What is that thing? We have to stay together. This isn't right. We should split up.
1: Yeah, good idea. Really?
2: We gotta get out of here. Somebody sent those things here to get us. You're missing the point. They want to see us punished.
1: this film. I love this film Beyond Words, which I'm sure we're going to get into, and it actually kind of shocked me to start doing research on this film to find that reviews are
0: divided. Oh yeah, I totally have like a husband's bulge for this film. It's a film that
1: Whedon called a loving hate letter to the genre, but I feel like it's a bit more of a critical love letter to the genre because I feel like insofar as it deconstructs the tropes, it does so, so lovingly. You know, there's homage to Evil Dead in here, duh. There's Friday the 13th, there's Saw, there's elements of Lovecraft, and it satirizes them, but it does so, so lovingly, and it actually does it best.
0: Yeah, I actually think of this film kind of as a rallying cry for horror fans and particularly for the kind of American horror genre. Now, I felt a real anticipation for this film because I'm sure, as many of our listeners know, it was kind of stuck in this weird limbo for a really long time. I think it was shot in like 2008, 2009, and then it fell to the movie gods to figure out what to do with it after the studio that helped finance it, MGM, went bankrupt. So that's kind of what caused the limbo. So I always remember hearing hearing about it for a really long time that Joss Whedon was working on something and it was with the guy who did Cloverfield, that would be Drew Goddard, and that it was going to come out. And I was so, so pumped for it. And yeah, it definitely did not let me down. I actually went to see it opening weekend in the theaters with some friends. And they were so, so on it. But I fell in love with it, so much so that my roommate, who was actually kind of interested in it, knows a bit about the horror genre. She was really curious. So I was like, you know what? Two weeks later, I was like, I'm taking you out on a date, I'm buying you a ticket to the movie, and we are going to go see it again. So I saw it twice in theaters. And both times, I just fell in love with it. And it made me want to think and critique and do this kind of stuff more and more.
1: If you listen to our Buffy episode, you know that I was kind of a latecomer to Buffy. I'm in my 30s now, and a lot of people our age who are obsessed with Buffy the Vampire Slayer started watching it in their teens and kind of had this experience of growing up with Buffy, of being in high school when Buffy and her friends were in high school, and then being in university and onward, and the different challenges they face as they got deeper and deeper into adulthood. But I didn't really have that experience. I got into it late, at the insistence of Stuart Feedback Andrews and also of my friend Maxine, who I worked with, and. I I was so in love with it that I started consuming all of Joss Whedon's other work. You know, I dabbled in Firefly. I got into Dollhouse. I became aware that he was involved with Toy Story, which I always thought was for a Disney film. The wit level was above and beyond. And I could really feel Joss Whedon's flavor in there. So when it came to Cabin in the Woods, I was actually just recovering from my serial concussion. I had two concussions in a row within the space of six months, which is actually really, really bad for your brain. And when you're recovering from a concussion... All you can do is rest your brain. You have to actually sit in the dark. And so I was really hurting for movies. I missed movies. I hadn't seen anything new. I hadn't seen anything good. So Cabin in the Woods was the first movie I saw in the cinema having recovered from that concussion. And I was in heaven. I remember when the credits were rolling, I was like, I want to see it again right now. Do you think we can just sit here and if we wait long enough and just really shrink into our seats, we won't have to pay again and we can just watch it again right now?
0: Yeah, I had a lot of respect for the film that it dared to critique something that it was at the same time doing. I thought it was really bold, and I thought it really pulled it off to the point that it's just as fun as any of the Friday the 13th films, but it also has a lot to say and it has a lot to think about. There's a lot to chew on there.
1: And we're going to be chewing the fat with you today, listeners. We've got pages and pages of notes, and we just really hope we do this colossal film justice.
0: So Cabin in the Woods tells two parallel stories that I'm going to try to break down right now for you. Five college students go to a cabin in the woods for a weekend away where they inadvertently awaken a zombie redneck torture family who begin to attack and kill the group. Underneath the cabin, we are introduced to the facility and the characters of Sitterson and Hadley, who are two technicians orchestrating the deaths of these students to appease these ancient gods called the Ancient Ones. There's a lot of pressure on the facility this evening because there are similar experiments going on around the world, but they're all failing. The orchestration involves these students passing through various horror tropes, such as the whore, the jock, the nerd, selecting how they'll die, which in this case is selecting the redneck zombie family, and finally transgressing. After this bloodbath with these students... Two of them, Dana and Marty, actually survive the night, much to the shock and chagrin of the facility, and Marty finds an entrance into the facility where they are confronted by an army of nightmares. So these monsters are pulled from all sorts of folklore and horror films, and these nightmares are imprisoned for explicit use in these rituals. Dana and Marty decide to unleash all of the monsters, which prevents the completion of the ritual, causing the ancient ones to rise. And, it's very strongly hinted, the end of the world.
1: This dual storyline really enhances the fact that The Cabin in the Woods is this meta reflection of the entire horror genre because you've got the crew watching everything play out and the way they're reacting to things kind of reflects the reaction of the horror community, the way somebody would react to watching the films.
0: I'm actually really glad you said the word reflection because one of the things that really strikes me about this film is how it's kind of a mirror image of our world. It's a total inverse of the way we view a film and the way our thinking about the world works. And the idea for this really started triggering for me because I always loved the line when Marty, who's the kind of stoner fool character, says, I thought there'd be stars.
2: I thought there'd be stars. We are abandoned.
0: And one thing that we and thinkers and for years and centuries and in many different ways think of the stars as where the gods are and where there is something watching over us. So if you look in an inverse mirror and in the way this world is structured is that it is the inverse. You've got the cabin at the top. You've got that on ground level. And then underneath you have the facility. And then underneath that are these ancient slumbering gods. And there is kind of a backwards way everything is working because Whedon and Goddard in particular have been very vocal in saying that Sitterson and Hadley are the mirror images of themselves. And then by doing that, the ancient ones are us, the audience.
1: And it's just one of the many, many ways that this film likes to play with our expectations. You feel like this film knows you better than we know ourselves. For example, the very opening scene, we're introduced to Hadley and Sitterson, and it's just another day at the office. They're talking about having to baby-proof their house. And there's actually a really interesting point where Hadley says something about us. baby proofing my house it's a fucking nightmare and that term actually comes up several times in the movie with reference to several banal first world problem things like this and this is a nightmare and this is a nightmare and it's actually a really interesting parallel with the rest of the film but what happens is they have their little chat and then they're taking a little go-kart through the compound and then boom the credits come up and it's a jump scare but it's such an amazing jump scare because you really actually aren't expecting it it's completely out of nowhere it's it, it's maybe the only cheap shot that the film takes and it takes it for the sake of a cheap shot to make you be like oh my god as if i just jumped at that
0: that was the exact moment in the movie the first time i saw it where i was like i'm into this yeah I've
1: that's when it. you know you're onto something special
2: she screwed in these little jobbies where you can't even open the drawers At all? No, they open, you know, like an inch, then you gotta dig your finger in. I mean, it's a nightmare.
1: Now, from there, I watched the movie with the commentary on recently because, of course, I want to hear what these guys have to say about it, and they brought up the point that this movie has tremendous rewatchability value because later, when we learn the extent to which the Institute is pulling the strings, that they're manipulating these characters into forming these archetypes that they've been meddling with Jules's bleach, for example, because they wanted her to be blonde, which de facto made her dumber, and that they've been messing with everybody in that way. We only really have that first scene with them getting into the car and heading toward the cabin in the woods to see what they're really like. And in that moment, they're actually very likable teenage archetypes. They're very relatable. You see that Jules is a cool friend. You see that the the jock, Kurt, is a caring, nice, smart guy. And it's only later that they start exhibiting those traits. And you only really notice that on the rewatch.
0: Yeah, I think every character in this film is pretty likable to some degree, whether they're just a really well-rounded character like these five college students are, or Citizen and Hadley, who are really funny, dry counterparts to them. I think what's a really interesting moment is in the climax of the slasher narrative, which is happening on top of them, where Dana, who is our de facto final girl in this film, she's fighting the last zombie redneck that's attacking her, and the camera just pans from that shot back into the control room, and they're all partying. And it's like, I like both these stories. I want to stay with both of them at the same time. But at the same time, we as an audience, I think, for people who really enjoy this film, we're really invested in Dana. That actress is terrific, Kristen Connolly, And the whole way it's shot, it's like, oh, I want to see what happens to her. And then we're pulling away to these other characters that we really like and watching them party and they don't care that she could die. It's a really conflicting moment. where We're really being jostled between two very strong emotions. And I think it's just a real credit to the strength of the writing and direction in this film.
1: It's true, that part is really jarring because we feel like this is going to be the disposal of the final girl and it just pulls us right out of it into this party atmosphere. And I remember when I was listening to the commentary, Drew Goddard said something to the effect of that was a scene that he really had to fight for to keep and he was so glad that he did because it made a big difference and I wholeheartedly agree.
0: They have this really fun like party moments which I really loved and feel very true to life and then that's the moment when the director calls and they realize that someone else has survived out of these group of college students and that something's not right and they have to go fix it. They think they've won. And so when you realize that for them, this is no longer a fun night and that it's actually gotten quite serious, that's another really great route that the story takes.
2: Turn the fucking music off.
1: So we're jumping ahead here. We're kind of jumping ahead to our favorite things and the things that we were really excited to talk about. But we really should take it from the beginning. And in the very intro, we are treated to this beautiful imagery of blood-stained mythology, blood-soaked architecture, images of cave paintings and images of sacrifice to gods. And I felt like it was a really interesting intro because it really goes to show the history of horror and how Horror has always been part of humanity, right down to cave paintings, right down to our earliest depictions of life and culture and our understandings of religion and how that informs this film, but also all the films that we watch. Now, these archetypes, we have talked about them in depth to death. We definitely talked about them for Evil Dead 1 and 2. We talked about them for Friday the 13th. So we won't go into them too much here, but the film really identifies five. We've got the jock. We've got the whore. We've got the food fool we've got the virgin and we've got the nerd who in this case is sort of kind of a jock as well and a huge babe
0: well i wanted to say i was thinking about this and yeah we have talked about these archetypes particularly the final girl but one that we haven't really talked about because i don't think he's ever been employed in such a well thought out way is the fool and that would be marty who becomes the hero of the whole film in in tandem with dana i would say and and I really think of that character as coming from medieval and renaissance theater, but I think it's most perfectly explored in Shakespeare, and they come from this lineage of the court jester who were comics who could get away with saying really offensive or critical things about people in power through being funny, and they got away with it. They were able to, in some cases, keep their heads.
1: Right. In that period in particular, The Fool was especially important because The Fool spoke the truth. The Fool said the critical societal things that nobody dared say, but it wasn't considered a big political statement because he was The Fool and because it was a comedy. And I think, again, that's such a great parallel to what horror is. This entire podcast exists because we're talking about how horror is such a significant reflection of society and it's important. And even though it's shrouded in titties and blood and gore and scares, there's a lot of important truths going on here.
0: Yeah, and I don't think there's a line Marty really says that isn't a huge truth bomb or very interesting and reveals something later on. And I actually pulled a quote that I think is used a lot when talking about fools, in particular Shakespeare's Fools. And it's from Isaac Asimov in his Guide to Shakespeare. And the quote is, that, of course, is the great secret of a successful fool, that he is no fool at all.
2: Statistical fact. Cops will never pull over a man with a huge bong in his car. Why? They fear this man. They know he sees farther than they. And he will bind them with ancient logics.
0: So Marty really does become the audience conduit. He is the person who is able to see things the most clearly and the person who fights and comes back from his supposed death, which is a really great moment. And the fact that he and Dana team up at the end was... It actually felt very powerful that these two characters cared so deeply about each other, and they cared about their friends, and they felt the loss of their friends. And often, as we've mentioned with The Final Girl, in particular the writings of Carol Clover, one of the emblems of being a Final Girl is you suffer on your own. You see your friends die, and you are witness to all of this trauma, but... Dana gets to share this, unfortunately, with Marty to a certain degree. And I I love the scenes when um, they're in those boxes and and they're actually just holding each other. And it feels very kind and and very human.
1: Now, one thing that I really liked about Marty, I thought it was a really interesting stylistic decision to make him a stoner because without getting too political about this podcast but pot is illegal and it's so ridiculously so you know it's one of those things where you know marty's a stoner he's totally harmless it's a criminal thing that he does that puts him at odds with society that society says i can't do this but fuck them it's not hurting anyone i'm gonna do it anyway he also tends to reject technology he's got a couple of lines to that effect and he drops some really great foreboding bombs my favorite of which is You will come to see things my way.
2: You will come to see things my way.
1: And we do. So this transgression of society is also reflected in the role of Mordecai, who is the super rude, redneck gas station attendant that they encounter right off the bat. And I love their encounter with this guy. I love the way they're talking to him. I love the way... They handle this situation when he's rude and ignorant, when he calls Jules a straight-up horror right off the bat. And Marty is just like, you know what? You're rude to my friends, so you can fuck right off. Anyway, he calls up the Institute after and starts pontificating all this kind of religious jargon about how we're going to cleanse the world of their ignorance and sin. And they're just laughing at him. And you really get the sense that Mordecai is in it for his own crazy backwards redneck reasons, but insofar as the Institute has their own reasons as well, they're just making fun of him.
0: I love that moment because Mordecai is actually trying to warn them as well. He's warning them of their own kind of hubris and trying to make them aware of how important this is because to these guys, Sitterson and Hadley and the people they work with, it's just a day job. It's a day job they can make bets on. And I love that sickening moment, especially as the film progresses. You realize this is not just another day at the office.
2: Don't take this lightly, boy. It wasn't all by your numbers. The fool nearly derailed the invocation with his insolence. The ancient ones see everything. and they will not be... (laughs) I'm still on speakerphone, aren't
1: I? So they enter the cabin, and one of the first things to happen is they pick out their rooms, and Holden actually discovers that in his room there is a two-way mirror that would effectively let him ogle his potential love interest, Dana. And when she starts taking off her shirt, he's got this hilarious internal struggle of, oh, oh, this isn't right, but, but, oh, uh, uh. And Joss Whedon is an outspoken feminist. He's really active and outspoken on the topic, which is something that I love about him. So the fact that he acknowledges that internal struggle, the fact that Holden does the right thing, but then when the roles are reversed, it kind of acknowledges the fact that, hey, you know, girls kind of want to look too, and Holden doesn't look too bad with his shirt off.
0: No, he does not.
1: So it's kind of an interesting balancing effect where all of the genders and all of the characters in this film are absolutely equals in terms of ability and passion.
0: I also really like the scene that follows that up in the cabin, which is the party scene, so to speak, when they're all drinking and hanging out, and the archetypal nature of all of them is kind of being forced to come out a bit more. And it's working on almost all of them, except for Marty a bit. Well, because his reefer is blocking it, right? We learn later.
1: Cleanup says the prep team missed one of the kids' sashes. Whatever he's been smoking has been immunizing him to all our shit. How does that help us right now? What? And what's really interesting about that scene is as these roles are being acted out, Marty's kind of not the only one to be like, what the fuck is going on here? Like when Jules does her little striptease, Dana and Holden are sitting there like, what are we watching exactly?
0: And that's also the first scene you see Holden wear glasses. He hasn't worn glasses in the first few scenes and they just appear to make him more of a nerd where he's just as much of a jock as Kirk is And there are also some really funny moments where they talk about Dana is virgin, but she's not really.
1: Me? Virgin?
2: We work with what we have.
0: And you just kind of start to see this internal struggle with all of the characters succumbing to a certain degree and other characters not succumbing to it.
1: So then they find the basement, and the basement is such an interesting scene because it's full of all these knickknacks, and they're horror movie artifacts. It's like going into a horror movie museum. These are exactly the kinds of things that you would expect to see down there, and you can, again, it starts playing with your expectations. What are they going to pick? What are they going to encounter? What are they going to unleash? And fittingly, everything that they find corresponds to their personality and their archetype in significant ways. What they wind up releasing are the Buckners, Who are like a redneck family, and the Buckners are so cool. I've seen so many zombie movies, so many crappy zombie movies. What I love about the Buckners are their weapons. When was the last time you saw someone wield a bear trap like that?
0: (laughs) Well, not recently, but it's been a few years.
1: The bear trap is so badass. The axe that they use to behead Jules when they have that scene of the teeth cutting across her face is so, so scary. And even... Uncle Buckner, one of the older <laughs> rednecks. I think he's the one who stabs Marty in the back, and it's it's half of a garden shear. Oh, God, yeah.
0: Just yeah, these rusty, gnarly.
1: blunt, gnarly instruments that look amazing.
0: I feel like in a lot of slasher films, especially some of the later ones in the bigger franchises, I'm thinking, you know, like Friday 13th, Jason takes Manhattan. As soon as Jason starts showing up, it's just kill, 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 kill. And one of the things I love about Cabin in the Woods is Whedon and Goddard really understand how invested we've become in these characters and how they play off our expectations. I mean, we've already brought up quite a bit in this episode already, but I always think of Kirk's death as so harrowing, like you see earlier on, like an eagle flying into this expanse that separates them from the outside world, especially after the cave tunnel has been collapsed. Now Kirk gets on a motorbike thinking he's going to jump it and he will somehow get to the other side And it will all be okay. And I remember the first time I watched this film, and you see Kirk, played by the very handsome Chris Hemsworth, who wants to avenge his girlfriend's death and save his friends and really do the right thing for the right reasons, take off on this bike and just hit this huge invisible wall and just fall to his death. And I remember my heart kind of breaking and then laughing out loud at the same time. And I love the way it kind of played with my expectation of what would happen and it not being a gory death.
1: That's right. I mean, we know that the force field is there. We know that's going to happen. But the movie almost doesn't acknowledge the fact that we know because they treat it with total deadpan seriousness. It's got the whole arc of anticipation leading up to it. You know, he says the right lines. He gets the kiss from the pretty girl and he revs up his engine. And when it happens, it still hurts, which is, again, such a masterful play with our expectations. And I just loved it.
0: Well, and he dies because of the very nature of the archetype he's become. He dies because of his jockness, that he thinks that he can go over this thing on his bike, and he might have made it. And then later, the next death that follows is Holden's, and his death starts as he's driving, and he is trying to be smart and trying to be calm. And you know what? If there hadn't been a zombie redneck torturer in the backseat of that car, that actually wasn't a bad plan.
2: And we'll just drive, and there's got to be another road, another way out of here. That won't work. Something will happen; it'll collapse, I'll wash away.
1: Then we just leave the roads all together. Drive as
2: far as we can into the forest, and we go on foot from there.
0: So essentially, what I'm kind of saying with all of these deaths and stuff that will come out later is basically that these kids almost have their tombstones written for them before they get there. And we know as an audience that this isn't really who they are because we've been privy to them before they entered this cabin. We understand them as kind, sensitive people who have deep friendships, not unlike ourselves. And we see their humanity being stripped away from them. And it's actually quite upsetting to watch their deaths because of that. We know that they didn't have the choices that we would make in those situations with all our wits about us.
1: So it's at this point, we've got our final girl, Dana. It seems like she's doomed, and so the Institute is partying. They've taken out bets on who's going to go first, not unlike the way horror fans kind of think when they're watching a movie. Like, I've seen all this play out before. And yet, we get to the point where Dana is reunited with Marty, and the two of them discover access to the elevator.
0: Fucking zombie arm.
1: Now, when they go down into the elevator, they come across these... Catacombs. I can only describe them as catacombs, just this enormous cube with square cells that each contain a horrible monster. And a lot of these monsters are borrowed from horror royalty, as Alex already mentioned. There is a character who bears a striking resemblance to Pinhead, for example. You can see the Shining Twins over here. Like, there are innumerable references. I think we posted something on the Facebook page that tried to chronicle all the references, and we still had a listener post something yeah. about it. That's not even scratching the surface so i'm not even going to try to list them all here but when i saw that what i thought of immediately was how many other times the film referenced nightmares and it really made me wonder where people's nightmares do come from are they collective amalgam of images that we see in movies are they a collective representation of things that we experience in life
0: well my nightmares oscillate between the like Nightmare where I have no money in my bank account and the nightmare where the woman in black is going to come get me. So I almost preferred the no money in my bank account dream because I can check my bank account quickly on my computer and realize that, okay, I do have some money in there. But I'm never sure about the woman in black.
1: I am cripplingly afraid of spiders. I don't know where it came from. I never had a particularly traumatic experience with a spider. But I did read something once upon a time that certain phobias that pertain to nature are actually evolutionary throwbacks of these are animals that are ostensibly dangerous. And so there is something deep in our DNA that makes us a little bit uneasy that this thing might really kill us. I also have a strange phobia with chalk.
0: What? Yeah, that's probably (laughs) my, my...
1: Weirdest phobia. I don't like dealing with chalk. I don't like getting it on my fingers. And one of my most harrowing moments was when I was playing roller derby. The Gore, Gore Roller Girls used to work out at this CrossFit gym called Bang Fitness. And Ashley Wessel, who we actually interviewed for her upcoming film, Inc., we did a filmmaker spotlight on her. She is a workout machine. She is incredibly buff, and I remember she just used to walk up to this huge barbell, and she'd dip her hands in the chalk, and she'd clap, and all these clouds would appear around her hands, and I'd be like, "Ah, ah, ah," (laughs) gagging, and she'd be like, what's your problem? And I was like, I can't handle chalk. Even talking about it right now, I'm actually feeling a little bit choked.
0: Well, okay, there wasn't actually a cube with a piece of chalk in it. (laughs) That's what I loved, and especially as the rest of the movie plays out, is that you see everything from, like, the Shining Twins and not Pinhead to big snakes and ghosts and things that kind of have emerged from all periods of time in history that there is this huge expanse of our humanity and experience that knows to be afraid of these things and knows to fear them and run away and that it's all contained within this one cell. I mean it's I have friends several friends who are all in different stages of writing horror scripts and they might have a seedling of an idea and ask me, you know, what about this? And how has that been done before? And and I'm always happy to talk to them. But it's funny when they actually have to get to deciding on the monster that will emerge or the the antagonist that will appear and how much decision-making goes into that. Because as we think about it, that becomes such a huge part of your film, that's basically your mascot when you make a successful horror film. And I love that the two characters who we've grown most fond of and have the most invested in are locked in with them, essentially becoming one of them. Works and just speaking of all the monsters that appear in the film and throughout the last third of the film, I did not want to mention that Heather Langenkamp, or Heather Anderson, as she works under when she works in FX, her and her husband, who's also a special effects artist and makeup guy, they contributed a lot, a lot of the practical effects to Cabin in the Woods. And I remember seeing her in uh, one of the DVD extras, and it was such a cool moment to know that in some way horror is still feeding itself, or it's like a snake eating itself, which is not a good thing. But in this case, it was really fucking cool, because I love Heather Langenkamp. There's also a lot of other stuff that pops up through the film. All these little throwaway lines, which, if you know, especially Joss Whedon, there's no such thing as a real throwaway line. And one of my favorite ones is that actually at the very beginning when they talk about the um, problems of the 98 experiment.
2: In 98, it was the chem department's fault, right? Where do you work again? Wait, it's coming back to me now.
0: And... I actually had to do a little bit of research because I was like, what the fuck happened in 1998? And it was a little film called The Faculty. And they mentioned that, and they mentioned that it was a chem lab problem. And the thing, if you look back at that movie, is that none of the characters actually died. or There was no real death in that film. Everyone kind of survived after the alien got implanted in them.
1: I'll tell you what bugs me about that film. I actually really like that movie, but... Every so often when I'm having a bad day and I'm wondering who out there likes my podcast, I will Google something called The Faculty of Horror just to see if there's a review that I don't know about or if somebody said something on their blog that maybe we want to share on our page or whatever. And all I ever get are reviews of The Faculty (laughs) because it's a horror movie. So The Faculty and horror call up reviews of that film and it annoys the shit out of me.
0: Maybe one day Andrea will be more famous than Josh Hartnett.
1: Probably not, because that film holds up. I saw it recently, and it's still pretty all right. Where do all these movies come from anyway? How do we know Spielberg, Lucas, Sonnenfeld, Emmerich haven't been visited by aliens? And maybe they're aliens themselves. Now, the film also reminded me of another experiment that I feel like Cabin in the Woods might have hinted at. At one point, they say that Kurt was a sociology major, and so obviously that struck a chord with me. I think they were making fun of him that, no, he's not a real jock. He's actually a sociology major, which is the anti-jocks, the biggest nerd there can possibly be. But there is an interesting experiment that happened in sociology that reminded me of this film, and it's an experiment known as the Milgram Experiment, which is an experiment where... They took somebody and they told them that they were going to be testing someone else, somebody in a room that they couldn't see. And they were supposed to ask them questions, and if their subject did not answer the questions properly, they were supposed to administer an electrical shock. And the idea was to test these people to see if they would willingly inflict pain upon another person out of sheer obedience, out of, hey, this is what you're supposed to do, now you have to do it. I believe the purpose of the experiment was to kind of see what the fuck was going on in Nazi Germany, how these SS guards were able to carry out the evil that they were able to carry out, that they were just following orders. They were like, is that a legitimate defense? Is that actually something that people could say? And they found that people who were perfectly kind, empathetic people were entirely willing to shock someone else in the name of obedience. If you're able to find... Clips of this experiment. I saw them in sociology classes. I'll look for them on YouTube, and if I can find them, I will definitely post them because they had dramatizations of people screaming and yelling in pain, and people still turned it up and zapped them just out of sheer obedience. The other experiment I thought of is actually the Stanford Prison Experiment, and... What this experiment was is they had a batch of students. Now, these are students, mind you, students who are trained in the scientific method. These aren't just volunteers that they pulled off the street just to do whatever. These were students, and half of them were told that they were to be prison guards for this experiment, and the other half were told that they were going to be prisoners. Now, these participants in this experiment internalized their roles so fully. They internalized them to the extent that the guards quickly began abusing their power and abusing the prisoners, and the prisoners themselves would take it and kind of resigned themselves to this fate that I am in a role that dictates abuse and that I have to tolerate abuse. And they're really interesting studies on human nature. And I felt like both of these experiments were kind of flirted with in the film.
2: Stanford University, Northern California, one of America's most prestigious academic institutions, And in 1971, the scene of one of the most notorious experiments in the history of psychology.
1: Now, I felt like this was really reflected when a certain member of the Institute is granted access to the action room. Hadley and Siderson are seasoned pros. They're like, you'll be fine, Rookie, just stick with us. And they said, you know, you've been you've been trained, right? You're going to be able to hold your post, right? Because sometimes things get pretty fucked up in here. And he's like, yeah, I'll hold my post. So to me, that just harkened back to these experiments. These people are prepped to hold their post and to guard against any compassion for the greater good. And I feel like in that way, there are no bad guys here. There are just two really competing worldviews, one group that is just trying to survive and another group's like, sorry, you have to die for the rest of us to survive. And personally, I would like the honor, but too bad I'm not a sexy teenager like you.
0: I think that's actually one of the big questions of which worldview do you subscribe to? And that's if we have to sacrifice five kids and the rest of us get to go on, is that worth it? Or do we take Marty's worldview, which is it's a fucked up world if we have to sacrifice people that are my friends and are good people to just appease these ancient ones and he talks quite eloquently about that the sun
2: is coming up in eight minutes if you live to see it the world will end maybe that's the way it should be if you gotta kill all my friends to survive maybe it's time for a change
1: That's right. That sense of fatalism is actually really apparent in a lot of Joss Whedon's work, most namely Buffy. Buffy is the chosen one, and she has to fight to the death every single day for the sake of humanity. And actually, in one of the show's more bizarre aspects, she dies several times for the sake of humanity. And one time she dies and comes back and is just like, you know what? I fucking died. Leave me alone (laughs) already. I was in heaven, and you brought me back to keep fighting for you fuck off so this nihilism is really apparent in Joss Whedon's work and I love the way it's flirted with at the very end of the film like first of all we've got this cameo appearance by Sigourney Weaver we have to talk about that when I was in the theater Maxine recognized her voice I didn't recognize her voice
0: Oh, I I did. I did. My boyfriend at the time I went to see it with. And I was like, it's Ripley.
1: So she is like horror royalty, obviously. So for her to pull this amazing cameo, and it's a really important role because she's the one who explains to them. And the fact that she is the director. So they've reached the top of the level here. And the director cares enough about this to be like, What? I'm just going to explain it to them. And then they'll spill their blood and humanity will be fine. Like they'll have to understand
0: so. I'm just going to come downstairs in my leather gloves and we're just going to sort this out.
1: As long as they accept
2: our sacrifice, they remain below. But the other rituals have all failed.
1: That's right. And she basically, you know, explains to that you have to either die for humanity or die with them. And even in that situation, Marty and Dana kind of hesitate. There's a point where Dana turns a gun on Marty and it's like, maybe, maybe is this what I'm supposed to do
0: I really like that moment of the film. And I've always wondered if it was maybe a gender thing where, uh, you know, you have Sigourney Weaver as the director appealing to their more humanistic senses. Like if he dies and then maybe you die, maybe you don't have to die, Dana. We can save this. It's not the end of the world. And Marty, as I've already mentioned, comes off with that. Maybe this isn't the way the world should run. Maybe it's time to let it go. But Dana having that kind of, I don't know, maybe more feminine quality, and this is something we've talked about a lot on this podcast, that appeals to a really deep instinct within her where she turns the gun on her friend who saved her and who she's seen things that are unseeable with. And it's, it's a really terrifying moment. And it's a really, for lack of a better term, it's a really fucking deep moment.
1: It is, and I and I do think it's tied up with gender. I think it, it's not as explicit in like we all know that women are supposed to be sympathetic and the whole hunter gatherer divide and stuff. I do feel there is an element of sacrifice that is attributed as a feminine trait. I feel like it's strongly tied up with motherhood as you're yep. supposed to throw yourself to the fire for you know the propagation of your seed, and then that could easily be expanded to the rest of mankind. Mm-hmm.
0: And I mean, neither Andrea nor I have children or, or children that we know of. And it's something that I felt a lot displaced on me is that, Alex, one day you will probably have a child and you will love them more than life itself. And you will want them to live more than you live. And I feel like I'm primed to expect something more for someone else than I am for myself. And that's something I personally really struggle with a lot. But It's really interesting because she actually has that decision taken away from her by a werewolf. Even going back to that female point just a little bit, one of the characters who intrudes on those final moments to let Marty and Dana make that decision together is actually little Anna Buckner, the little zombie redneck torture family girl who like kind of survives everything, and there are these really funny but kind of sad shots of like she's the last one to get off the elevator. She's kind of staggered by herself. And she actually shows up at the end and stabs Sigourney Weaver in the head. (laughs)
1: It's true. She's actually a very significant character. If you remember back to when they were reading her diaries, as the young woman of the family, she was imbued with a lot of this responsibility to be the, the sexual gatekeeper and you know, the glue that holds the family together. So I thought that was really telling that they carried her all the way through the end. I also thought it was really interesting that Marty and Dana share a joint at the end, which, again, I felt like was a symbol of fuck society.
0: Yeah. And I think that kind of sharing of a joint is an acknowledgement of society's fucked. It's, you know, we've adhered to all these rules. We've we've adhered as much as we could, and it still means nothing. So fuck it. We're going to go out on our own terms the way we want to.
1: Now, thinking of the film... Analytically, it, it reminded me of another prominent sociologist by the name of Antonio Gramsci, and he was an Italian sociologist. So, you know, obviously, I have an affinity for him. We're like paisan. Now, he is a Marxist <laughs> sociologist who did the bulk of his writing from prison. He was imprisoned under Mussolini's reign.
0: Oh my God, who wasn't imprisoned under Mussolini?
1: True that. Anyway, it's just really badass. And his whole thing was how society functions by categorically terrorizing its members. You know, we have this film where the game is rigged, but the choices are made out of free will. Marx predicted that a revolt was inevitable, that capitalism could not last because of the way it was built. It was untenable, and a revolution is happening, guys. Just wait. Just wait. And so Gramsci waited, and he's like, you know what? A revolution is not happening. This system is actually way more secure than he thought. And the reason why, he deduced, was cultural hegemony, which states how cultural institutions maintain power under capitalism.
0: Well, I think that's actually explored really well in this film because at the start of the film we gain knowledge that the ritual is failing in other countries, and the only two countries left are Japan and America. And we get these really great little sequences where all these little Japanese girls in a classroom are being terrorized by a Samara-like ghost, uh, like a total J-horror. And it's such a fun little moment for a horror fan, but they actually defeat that ghost. And, you know, there's a great moment where Citizen and Hadley are getting really fucking angry at these little girls.
2: Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck
0: you! And I think there is that sense that this game, in its different ways, was rigged across the entire world. And when push came to shove in different instances, humanity actually won and was able to defeat the evil. And in the American situation, which is the version we're really with in this film, it actually got subverted so deeply because the capitalist dream is so ingrained in the American identity. It's, you know, come to this country, work hard, play hard, and you're going to do just fine.
1: Well, as Gramsci put it, the reason why we didn't revolt was the ruling class were able to effectively convince the working class that their worldview is the norm, and they did so by manipulating culture and letting the population think that they're choosing it this ideology of working yourself to the bone, working so hard so that society can flourish when it's actually only you that's working that hard and it's pretty fucking unfair. But that kind of ideology seeps in to the point that we believe this is how it's supposed to go. And I think cultural hegemony has a lot of really interesting ties in with film uh, especially as pertains to archetypes which we're talking about today because the story is rigged and insofar as kurt was a bit of a jock and marty might be a bit of a fool and dana might be a bit of a virgin they were being pushed along but at the same time they did kind of already fit these roles and they were roles set out for us that in order to fit into society we make ourselves fit into
0: One of the things I thought a lot about in going back and thinking about this film is the idea of catharsis. That was uh, one of the big themes in Greek theater, and catharsis really means to cleanse or to purge. So that's something the film kind of really hits you over the head with when Dana and Marty decide to press the big red button that says purge the system, and all the monsters get unleashed into the facility, killing and wiping out everything that's going on. Now, I think what Cabin in the Woods does is offer a political catharsis and that it's the sense that everything's too entangled with each other. Like, for instance, I was in New York City a couple weekends ago, and I was with a girlfriend of mine, and she's doing her Ph.D. in urban planning. And I was riding the subway with her in New York, and she was like... Wow, look at all those leaks. Look at that. Look at that construction over there. Look at this. Look at that. And I was like, Jesus, don't you ever get nervous? She's like, I'm just happy I get anywhere in this city. And it's true. It's like everything is just kind of patched together in the society that we're all holding on to so deeply. And I think what Whedon and Goddard offer us is a really radical idea of like fuck, let's see what happens when the world ends. Let's let it fall apart. And I think that, for me, that felt really powerful because a lot of what horror films do is they offer these intense, subversive ideas. And then in the end, a patriarchal order is restored. And everything kind of goes back to normal. But it's very few horror films, I think there are maybe more and more these days, offer a total nihilistic view of the world. And I love that The Cabin in the Woods is maybe not a totally nihilistic view because Marty suggests that maybe it's time to let someone else have a chance. And the way they refer to these ancient ones is like, if we keep doing this ritual, the ancient ones will slumber. And it's like, who wants to fucking slumber through their life?
1: Right. And how much do we really know about these ancient ones? Maybe these ancient ones are, as Marty puts it, maybe they should have a turn. I think a lot of progress is tamped out in our society out of fear and routine, frankly.
0: And I mean, so much of our leftist politics has to do with having just enough to keep us at bay. It's inciting something more within us. And like I said earlier, it's kind of a rallying cry, not just as a horror fan to demand more from the genre, but just more from life, just to question more and ask more questions. And I have the biggest husband's bulge for this movie, you guys.
1: And I have to say, I think this movie actually ruined years and years of horror movies that came after it. I remember watching it and being like, holy fuck, this has raised the bar for horror. I don't know what's going to happen next. And what happened next? Like the next big deal in horror was the Evil Dead remake. And I was like, fuck this movie. It's not a terrible movie. I mean, you no. if you heard our Evil Dead episode, you heard some of my problems with it and whatever. But I just thought Cabin in the Woods – Blew it away. If you're going to make a remake of a film that takes place in a cabin in the woods and is your categorical, prototypical rehash of that story, here's this amazing movie that turns it on its head and makes you think and, and entertains you and frightens you and makes you laugh. And the Evil Dead remake just fell so short and so has, frankly, everything that's come after.
0: It's kind of like the biggest mic drop in horror films. It's like, all right, we gave you all of the monsters we could think of. We showed you all the carnage. We showed you everything. We showed you humanity within that. And maybe we don't know what happens next, but I want to see what happens next. I felt like it really was that kind of like boom. And I feel like people just can't get over that hurdle.
1: No, they can't. And Joss Whedon is making fucking Avengers now and making gazillions of dollars. So
0: Well, that was the weirdest thing, especially because, as I mentioned earlier, Cabin in the Woods was delayed for about three years. So you had Cabin in the Woods, I think it came out in April, and then like a month, maybe a month and a half later, the Avengers came out. And I was like, huh, well... Someone's living on a pile of money somewhere. I know, it sucks.
1: It it actually really reminds me of Sam Raimi, where it's just like Hollywood gets a hold of our geniuses and twists them into the mainstream genres, and it's like, no, we need him in horror. We need him (laughs) so badly in horror.
0: I mean, I think, if anything, we're seeing a bit more, I think especially from the films of the new French extremity movement, which I'm personally... Again, I don't know if you can say you're a fan of those films because they are so bleak, but they offer some really intense insights into humanity and often don't offer that easy return to patriarchal solution that a lot of horror films do. So I think there are films that are attempting to get there and are getting there to a certain extent, especially within the horror community. But you have to remember, like, Cabin in the Woods was a studio film released by a studio had marketing and PR support behind it. Like, they wanted it to do well. And most of, like, the new French extremity films are just something you kind of hear about from your friend or you seek out or you have to go and find a DVD or download it. It's not that readily available.
1: So that's our episode on Cabin in the Woods. We both clearly love this film. We were able to... Scratch the surface, I hope. I mean, I've got pages and pages of notes. I think I'm going to have to severely edit this to keep from rambling on with sheer love about it. But I'm aware that the horror community was very divided about it. I think... Some are reluctant to call it a horror film because it's got these comedic elements, a lot of comedic elements. It's got this back-end institutional comedy-type thing that's maybe a bit sterile and something that we're not really used to. But I would definitely like to hear from you if you did not like this movie. I would like your address and your greatest fear so I can unleash your nightmare in your closet.
0: I think some people have a problem with this film because it is critical of horror movies. And I think some people initially really saw that as an affront right off the bat. And I can definitely understand that. But I think when you really love something, you criticize it or you think critically about it.
1: In this podcast, we look at a lot of horror films where sometimes we have to work kind of hard to unpack it and take meaning out of it and really think about it, whereas Cabin in the Woods is just a buffet of analysis and we only picked out what we could. But there's a lot more out there. So again, that's a call to you listeners to fill us in and let us know what you thought about it.
0: But in the spirit of giving, we do have a new contest. It's been a little while, but thanks to our friends at Mongrel Media, we do have some passes to give out to the quote-unquote new scariest American film ever, 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 ever. It's a film called It Follows, and you will have to interact with us on Facebook and or Twitter. So please make sure you're following both of those things at the same time and checking constantly.
1: Right, there's been a lot of hype about this film, and so far
0: from what I've seen on Reddit, it's good. Yeah, I I haven't heard anything bad, but I'm terrified because I never, ever want to get my hopes up.
1: No, I know, and we've just seen Cabin in the Woods. I don't know how many times you watched it to prep for this podcast, but once again, I'm totally spoiled by it.
0: Yeah, I watched it, I think, three times the whole way through and lead up to this episode, and I could happily watch it again tomorrow.
1: So make sure you're following us on social media and stay tuned for that contest because we're excited to have stuff to give away to give back to you listeners who give us so much. For example, you have given us our inspiration for our next episode. Due to popular request after our assessment episode, we are going to do an episode on The Matriarchy.
0: Yeah, we pulled from a lot of the suggestions you had and there were two films that kept coming up so we are going to talk about those two films we are going to talk about the original wicker man and paranormal activity 3 and i think in talking about those two films we may talk about the remake of wicker man with Nicolas cage and the bees
2: oh no not the bees not the bees
0: maybe some mention of the first two paranormal activity films but i think it will make for a very interesting conversation and maybe we'll finally stop talking about the patriarchy right andrea
1: that'll be the day (laughs) (laughs) so as always thank you listeners for listening to us and inspiring us to keep doing this podcast we'll keep putting them out as long as you keep listening so until next time
0: office hours are closed
2: my monster from his slab began to rise, and suddenly, to my surprise, he did the match, he did the monster match, the monster match, it was a graveyard smash, he did the match, it got on in a flash, he did the match, he did the monster match, from my laboratory in the castle east, to the master bedroom room where the vampire the ghouls all came from their humble abode to get a jolt from my electrode. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. They did the mash. It caught on in a flash. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. Oh, the zombies were having fun. In the party had They played the Monster Mash Out from his coffin voice did ring Seemed he was troubled by Just one thing Opened the lid And shook his fist and said Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? It's now the Mash It's now the Monster Mash The Monster Mash And it's a graveyard smash It's now the Mash It's caught on and flashed It's now the Mash It's now the Monster Mash Everything's cool, Jack's a part of the band And my Monster Mash is the hit of the land For you, the living, this mash was meant to When you get to my door, tell them what it said Then you. you can mash Then you can Monster Mash The Monster Mash And you, my graveyard, smash. Then you can mash You'll catch on in a plan Then you can mash Then you can Monster Mash